0: Chapter Twenty Two, Part Two of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris and Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Nine chapter 22 part 2 the night was short for she was obliged to return at 3 in the morning and it struck 1 as we sat down to the table as the climax of ill luck a storm came on whilst we were at supper our hair stood on end our only hope was founded in the nature of these squalls which seldom last more than an hour we were in hopes also that it would not leave behind too strong a wind as it is sometimes the case FOR THOUGH I WAS STRONG AND STURDY, I WAS FAR FROM HAVING THE SKILL OR EXPERIENCE OF A PROFESSIONAL BOATMAN. IN LESS THAN HALF AN HOUR THE STORM BECAME VIOLENT. ONE FLASH OF LIGHTNING FOLLOWED ANOTHER. THE THUNDER ROARED, AND THE WIND GREW TO A GALE. YET, AFTER A HEAVY RAIN, IN LESS THAN AN HOUR, THE SKY CLEARED. BUT THERE WAS NO MOON, IT BEING THE DAY AFTER THE ASCENSION. TWO O'CLOCK STRUCK, I PUT MY HEAD OUT THE WINDOW, but perceive that a contrary gale is blowing. Ma tirano del mar libecio resta. This libecio, which Ariosto calls, and with good reason, the tyrant of the sea, is the southwesterly wind, which is commonly called Garbine in Venice. I said nothing, but I was frightened. I told my sweetheart that we must needs sacrifice an hour of pleasure, since prudence would have it so. Let us set out forthwith, for if the gale gets stronger I shall not be able to double the island. She saw my advice was not to be questioned, and taking the key of her strong box. Whence she desired to get some money, she was delighted to find her store increased fourfold. She thanked me for having told her nothing about it, assuring me that she would have of me nothing but my heart. And following me she got into my boat, and lay down at full length, so as not to hinder its motion." I GOT UPON THE POOP, AS FULL AS FEAR AS COURAGE, AND IN FIVE MINUTES I HAD THE GOOD LUCK TO DOUBLE THE POINT. BUT THERE IT WAS THAT THE TYRANT WAS WAITING FOR ME, AND IT WAS NOT LONG BEFORE I FELT THAT MY STRENGTH WOULD NOT OUTLAST THAT OF THE WINDS. I rowed WITH ALL MY STRENGTH, BUT ALL I COULD DO WAS PREVENT MY BOAT FROM GOING BACK. FOR HALF AN HOUR I WAS IN THIS PITIFUL STATE, AND I FELT MY STRENGTH FAILING WITHOUT DARING TO SAY A WORD. I WAS OUT OF BREATH, BUT COULD NOT REST A MOMENT since the least relaxation would have let the boat slip a far way back, and this would have been a distance hard to recover. M. M. lay still and silent, for she perceived that I had no breath, wherewith to answer her. I began to give up ourselves as lost. At that instant I saw in the distance a bark coming swiftly towards us. What a piece of luck! I waited till she caught up, for if I had not done so... I SHOULD NOT HAVE BEEN ABLE TO MAKE MYSELF HEARD, BUT AS SOON AS I SAW HER AT MY LEFT HAND, TWELVE FEET OFF, I SHOUTED, HELP, I WILL GIVE TWO SEQUINS. THEY LOWERED SAIL AND CAME TOWARDS ME, AND ON THEIR HAILING ME, I ASKED FOR A MAN TO TAKE US TO THE OPPOSITE POINT OF THE ISLAND. THEY ASKED A SEQUIN IN ADVANCE. I GAVE IT TO THEM, AND PROMISED THE OTHER TO THE MAN WHO WOULD GET ON MY POOP AND HELP ME TO MAKE THE POINT. In less than ten minutes we were opposite to the little stream leading to the convent, but the secret of it was too dear to be hazard. So, as soon as we reached the point, I paid my preserver and sent him back. Henceforth the wind was in our favor, and we got to the little door where M. M-M M. landed, saying to me, Go and sleep in the casino. I thought her advice wise, and I followed it, and having the wind behind me, I got to the casino without trouble and slept till broad day. As soon as I had risen, I wrote to my dear mistress that I was well, and that we should see each other at the grating. Having taken my boat back to St. Francis, I put on my mask, and went to Liston. In the morning M. M. came to the grating by herself, and we made all such observances as our adventures of the night would be likely to suggest. But in place of deciding to follow the advice which prudence should have given us, namely not to expose ourselves to danger for the future, we thought ourselves extremely prudent in resolving that if we were again threatened by a storm, we should set out as soon as we saw it rising. All the same, we had to confess that if chance had not thrown the bark in our way, we should have been obliged to return to the casino, for M. M. could not have got to the convent, and how could she have entered its walls again? I should have been forced to leave Venice with her, and that forever. My life would have been finally and irretrievably linked with hers, and, without doubt, the various adventures which, at the age of seventy-two years, impel me to write these memoirs, would never have taken place. For the next three months we continued to meet each other once a week, always amorous, and never disturbed by the slightest accidents. M, M, could not resist giving the ambassador a full account of our adventures, and I promised to write to him, and always to write the whole truth. He replied by congratulating us on our good fortune, but he prophesied inevitable disaster if we had not the prudence to stop our intercourse. Mr. Murray, the English ambassador, a witty and handsome man, and a great amateur at the fair, sex, wine, and good cheer, then kept the fair and killa, introduced me to him. This fine fellow became my friend in much the same way as Monsieur de Berny, the only difference being that the Frenchmen liked to look on, while the Englishmen preferred to give the show. I was never unwelcome at their amorous battles, and the voluptuous Anchilla was delighted to have me for a witness. I never gave them the pleasure of mingling in the strife. I loved M. M., but I should avow that my fidelity to her was not entirely dependent on my love. Though Anchilla was handsome, she inspired me with repugnance, for she was always hoarse, and complained of a sharp pain in the throat, and though her lover kept well, I was afraid of her, and not without cause, for the disease which ended the days of Francois I of France brought her to the grave in the following autumn. A quarter of an hour before she died, her brave Briton, yielding to the lascivious requests of this new messalina, offered in my presence the last sacrifice, in spite of a large sore on her face which made her look hideous. This truly heroic action was known all over the town, and it was Murray himself who made it known, citing me as his witness. This famous courtesan, whose beauty was justly celebrated, feeling herself eaten away by an internal disease, promised to give a hundred louis, to a doctor named Lucchesi, who, by dint of mercury, undertook to cure her, but Anchilla specified on the agreement that she was not to pay the aforesaid sum to Lucchesi had offered her, with an amorous sacrifice. The doctor, having done his business as well as he could, wished to be paid without submitting to the conditions of the treaty, but Anchilla held her ground, and the matter was brought before a magistrate. In England, where all agreements are binding, Anchilla would have won her case, but at Venice she lost it. The judge, in giving sentence, said a condition criminal per se, not fulfilled, did not invalidate an agreement, a sentence abounding in wisdom, especially in this instance. Two months before this woman had become disgusting, my friend, Monsieur Memo, afterwards procurator, asked me to take him to her house. In the height of the conversation, what should come but a gondola, and we saw Count Rosenberg, the ambassador from Vienna, getting out of it. Monsieur Memo was thunderstruck, for a Venetian noble conversing with a foreign ambassador becomes guilty of treason to the state, and ran in hot haste from Anchilla's room, I after him, but on the stair he met the ambassador, who, seeing his distress, burst into a laugh and passed on. I got directly into M. Memo's gondola, and we went forthwith to M. Cavalli, secretary to the state inquisitors. M. Memo could have taken no better course to avoid the troublesome consequences which this fatal meeting might have had, and he was very glad that I was with him to testify to his innocence, and to the harmlessness of the occurrence. M. Cavalli received M. Memo with a smile and told him that he did well to come to confession without wasting any time. Monsieur Memo, much astonished at this reception, told him the brief history of the meeting, and the secretary replied, with a grave air, that he had no doubt as to the truth of his story, as the circumstances were in perfect correspondence with what he knew of the matter. We came away extremely puzzled at the secretary's reply, and discussed the subject for some time. But then we came to the conclusion that M. Cavalli could have come to no positive knowledge of the matter before we came, and that he only spoke as he did from the instinct of an inquisitor, who likes it to be understood that nothing is hid from him for a moment. After the death of Anchilla. Mr. Murray remained without a titular mistress, but, fluttering about like a butterfly, he had, one after another, the prettiest girls in Venice. This good-natured Epicurean set out for Constantinople two years later, and for twenty years the ambassador of the court of St. James at the sublime porte. He returned to Venice in seventeen seventy eight with the intention of ending his days there, far from the affairs of state, but he died in the lazaretto eight days before the completion of his quarantine. At play, fortune continued to favor me, my commerce with M. M. could not be discovered now that I was my own waterman, and the nuns who were in the secret were too deeply involved not to keep it. I led them a merry life, but I foresaw that as soon as M. de Berny decided to let M. M. know that he would not return to Venice, he would recall his people, and we should then have the casino no longer. I knew besides that when the rough season came on it would be impossible for me to continue our voyages. The first Monday in October, when the theaters are opened and the masks may be worn, I went to St. Francis to get my boat, and thence to Moran for my mistress, afterwards making for the casino. The nights were now long enough for us to have ample time for enjoyment, so we began by making an excellent supper, and then devoted ourselves to the worship of love and sleep. Suddenly, In the midst of a moment of ecstasy, I heard a noise in the direction of the canal, which aroused my suspicions, and I rushed to the window. What was my astonishment and anger to see a large boat taking mine in tow? Nevertheless, without giving way to my passion, I shouted to the robbers that I would give them ten sequins if they would be kind enough to return me my boat. A shout of laughter was all the reply they made, and not believing what I said, they continued their course. What was I to do? I dared not cry, Stop, thief! And not being endued with the power of walking on the water dry-footed, I could not give chase to the robbers. I was in the utmost distressed, and for the moment M. M. showed signs of terror, for she did not see how I could remedy this disaster. I dressed myself hastily, giving no more thoughts to love, my only comfort being that I still had two hours to get the indispensable boat should it cost me a hundred sequins. I should have been in no perplexity, if I had been able to take one, but the gondoliers would infallibly make proclamation over the whole of Moran that they had taken a nun to such a convent, and all would have been lost. The only way, then, that was open to me was either to buy a boat or to steal one. I put my pistols and dagger in my pocket, took some money, and with an oar on my shoulder set out. The robbers had filed the chain of my boat with a silent file. This I could not do. I could only reckon on having the good luck to find a boat moored with cords. Coming to the large bridge, I saw boats, and to spare. But there were people on the quay, and I could not risk taking one. Seeing a tavern open at the end of the quay, I ran like a madman, and asked if there were any boatmen there. And the drawer told me that there were two, but that they were drunk, I came up to them and said, Who will take me to Venice for eighty sous? I, and I. And they began to quarrel as to who should go. I quieted them by giving forty sous to the more drunken of the two, and I went out with the other. As soon as we were on my way, I said, You are too drunk to take me. Lend me your boat, and I will give it back to you tomorrow. I don't know you. I will deposit ten sequins, but your boat is not worth that. "'Will that be your surety?' He took me back to the tavern, and the drawer went bail for him. Well pleased, I took my man to the boat, and having furnished it with a second oar and two poles, he went away, chuckling at having made a good bargain, while I was as glad to have had the worst of it. I had been an hour away, and on entering the casino found my dear M. M. in an agony, but as soon as she saw my beaming face... All laughter came back to hers. I took her to the convent, and then went to St. Francis, where the keeper of the boat house looked as if he thought me a fool, when I told him that I had trucked away my boat for the one I had with me. I put on my mask, and went forthwith to my lodging and to bed, for these annoyances had been too much for me. About this time my destiny made me acquainted with a nobleman named Mark Antony Zoysi, a man of parts, and famous for his skill in writing verses in the Venetian dialect. Zorsi, who was very fond of the play, and desired to offer a sacrifice to Thalia, wrote a comedy, which the audience took the liberty of hissing, but having persuaded himself that his piece only failed through the conspiracies of the Abbe Chiari, who wrote for the theatre of San Angelo, he declared open war against the Abbe's plays. I felt no reluctance whatsoever to visit M. Vosorzi, for he possessed an excellent cook and a charming wife. He knew that I did not care for Chiari as an author, and M. Ziori had people in his pay who, without pity, rhyme, or reason, hissed all the compositions of the ecclesiastical playwright. My part was to criticize them and hammer verses, a kind of doggerel then much in fashion, And Zorzi took care to distribute my lucubrations far and wide. These manoeuvres made me a powerful enemy in the person of Monsieur Condomer, who liked me none the better for having all the appearance of having been in high favour with Madame Zorzi, to whom before my appearance he had paid diligent court. This Monsieur Condomer was to be excused for not caring for me, for, having a large share in the San Angelo theatre, The failure of the Abbey's pieces was a loss to him, as the boxes had to be let at a very low rent, and all men are governed by interested motives. This Monsieur Condomer was sixty years old, but with all the greenness of youth he was still fond of women, gaming, and money, and he was, in fact, a money-lender, but he knew how to pass for a saint, as he took care to go to Mass every morning at St. Mark's and never omitted to shed tears before the crucifix. The following year he was made a counselor, and in that capacity he was for eight months a state inquisitor. Having thus obtained this diabolically eminent, or eminently diabolical, position, he had not much difficulty in showing his colleagues the necessity of putting me under the leads as a disturber of the peace of the republic. In the beginning of the winter the astounding news of the treaty between France and Austria was divulged, a treaty by which the political balance was entirely readjusted, and which was received with incredulity by the powers. The whole of Italy had reason to rejoice, for the treaty guarded that fair land from becoming the theatre of war, on the slightest difference which might arise between the two powers. What astonished the most acute, was that this wonderful treaty was conceived and carried out by a young ambassador who had hitherto been famed only as a wit the first foundations had been laid in 1750 by madame de pompadour count Keynes, who was created a prince and monsieur le abbé de berny who was not known till the following year when the king made him an ambassador to venice the house of bourbon and the House of Habsburg had been foes for two hundred and forty years when this famous treaty was concluded. But it only lasted for forty years, and it is not likely that any treaty will last longer between the two courts, so essentially opposed to one another. The Abbe de Berny was created Minister for Foreign Affairs some time after the ratification of the treaty. Three years after he re-established the parliament, became a cardinal, was disgraced, and finally sent to Rome, where he died. Mors ultimo linea rellum est. Affairs fell out, as I had foreseen. For nine months after he left Venice, he conveyed to M. M. the news of his recall, though he did it in the most delicate manner. Nevertheless, M. M. felt the blow so severely that she would very possibly have succumbed, had I not been preparing her for it in every way I could think of, M. de Berny sent me all instructions. He directed all the contents of the casino should be sold, and the proceeds given to M. M., with the exception of the books and prints which the housekeeper was ordered to bring to Paris. It was a nice breviary for a cardinal, but would to God they had nothing worse. Whilst M. M., Abandoned herself to grief, I carried out the orders of Monsieur de Berny, and by the middle of January we no longer had a casino. She kept by her two thousand sequins and her pearls, intending to sell them later on to buy herself an annuity. We were now only able to see each other at the grating, and soon, worn with grief, she fell dangerously ill and, on the 2nd of February, I recognized in her features the symptoms of approaching death. She sent me her jewel case, with all her diamonds, and nearly all her money, all the scandalous books she possessed, and all her letters, telling me that if she did not die I was to return her the whole, but that all belonged to me, if, as she thought she should, succumb to the disease. She also told me that C. See, see, was aware of her state, and asked me to take pity on her and to write to her, as my letters were her only comfort, and that she hoped to have strength to read them till her last breath. I burst into tears, for I loved her passionately, and I promised her to come and live in Moran till she recovered her health. Having placed the property in a gondola, I went to the Bragadin palace to deposit it, and then returned to Moran to get Laura to find me a furnished room where I could live as I liked. "'I know of a good room with meals provided,' she said. "'You will be quite comfortable, and we will get it cheaply, and if you like to pay in advance, you need not even say who you are. The old man to whom the house belongs lives on the ground floor. He will give you all the keys, and if you like, you need see no one.' She gave me the address." and I went there on the spot, and I found everything to my liking. I paid a month in advance, and the thing was done. It was a little house at the end of a blind alley, abutting on the canal. I returned to Laura's house to tell her that I wanted a servant to get my food, and to make my bed, and she promised to get me one by the next day. Having set all in order for my new lodging, I returned to Venice and packed my mails as if I were going to make a long journey after supper i took leave of monsieur de Bragadin and of his two friends telling them that i was going to be away for several weeks on important business next day going to my new room i was surprised to find there tonine laura's daughter a pretty girl not much more than fifteen years old who told me with a blush but with more spirit than i gave her credit for that she would serve me as well as her mother would have done I WAS IN TOO MUCH DISTRESS TO THANK LAURA FOR THIS PRETTY PRESENT, AND I EVEN DETERMINED THAT HER DAUGHTER SHOULD NOT STAY IN MY SERVICE. WE KNOW HOW MUCH SUCH RESOLUTIONS ARE COMMONLY WORTH. IN THE MEANTIME, I WAS KIND TO THE GIRL. I AM SURE, I SAID, OF YOUR GOOD WILL, BUT I MUST TALK TO YOUR MOTHER. I MUST BE ALONE. I ADDED, AS I HAVE TO WRITE ALL DAY, I SHALL NOT TAKE ANYTHING TILL THE EVENING. SHE THEN GAVE ME A LETTER begging pardon for not having given it to me sooner. "'You must never forget to deliver messages,' I said, "'for if you had waited any longer before bringing me this letter, "'it might have had the most serious consequences.' "'She blushed, begged pardon, and went out of the room. "'The letter was from C., C., "'who told me that her friend was in bed, "'and that the doctor had pronounced her illness to be fever.' I passed the rest of the day in putting my room in order, and in writing to C. C. and her suffering friend. Towards evening Tonine brought in the candles, and told me that my supper was ready. "'Follow me,' I said, seeing that she had only laid supper for one, a pleasing proof of her modesty. I told her to get another knife and fork, as I wished her always to take her meals with me. I can give no account of my motives. I only wish to be kind to her, And I did everything in good faith. By and by, reader, we shall see whether this is not one of the devices by which the devil compasses his ends. Not having any appetite, I ate little, but I thought everything good, with the exception of the wine. But Tonine promised to get some better by the next day, and when supper was over, she went to sleep in the ante room. After sealing my letters, Wishing to know whether the outer door was locked, I went out and saw Tonine in bed, sleeping peacefully, or pretending to do so. I might have suspected her thoughts, but I have never been in a similar situation, and I measured the extremity of my grief by the indifference with which I looked at this girl. She was pretty, but for all that I felt that neither she nor I ran any risk. Next day... Waking very early, I called her, and she came in neatly dressed. I gave her my letter to C. C., which enclosed the letter to M. M., telling her to take it to her mother, and then return to make my coffee. "'I shall dine at noon, Tonine,' I said. "'Take care to get what is necessary in good time. "'Sir, I prepared yesterday's supper myself, and, if you like, I can cook all your meals.' I am satisfied with your abilities. Go on, and here is a sequin for the expenses. I still have a hundred and twenty sous remaining from the one you gave me yesterday, and that will be enough. No, they are for yourself, and I shall give you as much every day. Her delight was so great that I could not prevent her covering my hand with kisses. I took care to draw it back, and not to kiss her in return, for I felt as if I should be obliged to laugh and this would have dishonored my grief. The next day passed like the first. Tonine was glad that I said no more about speaking to her mother, and drew the conclusion that her services were agreeable to me. Feeling tired and weak, and fearing that I should not wake early enough to send the letter to the convent, but not wishing to rouse Tonine if she were asleep, I called her softly. She rose immediately and came to my room, with nothing on but a slight petticoat, Pretending to see nothing, I gave her my letter, and told her to take it to her mother in the morning before she came into my room. She went out, saying that my instructions should be carried out, but as soon as she was gone, I could not resist saying to myself that she was very pretty, and I felt both sad and ashamed at the reflection that this girl could very easily console me. I hugged my grief, and I determined to separate myself from a being who made me forget it, In the morning, I said, I will tell Laura to get me something less seducing. But the night brought counsel, and in the morning I put on the armor of sophism, telling myself that my weakness was no fault of the girl's, and that it would therefore be unjust to punish her for it. We shall see, dear reader, how all this ended. End of chapter 22, part 2